What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. That's right. You hear the music behind the scenes as I'm talking. Kale. Yeah. Up in the ante with the show. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's uh, it caught us all by surprise. You know. Thank God we were both. Uh, I wasn't picking my nose or something because <laughs> cut out a little earlier. <laughs> I know I was looking down at my papers and everything, but you know what? We're going to have a freaking awesome show. So look, we're yes. doing things a little differently these days. Um, we want to offer those who help to support the show and of course the Jackman show as well with some extra perks. Um, so you are w- likely watching live because you're a member um, of the weekend's channel and you'll get access to the entire show. Uh, We're going to put out clips for everyone because we want to make sure that everyone has access to this content for free. Um, But for those of you who are members um, of our YouTube channel, you will get the entire show uninterrupted. And we do want to thank our members um, for helping to support the show and uh, helping to sustain us. It's really important to do it. We appreciate it. Yeah, to be clear, all of this will be put online eventually. Um, you know, we won't hold anything behind the paywall. But, uh, you know, the live experience, if you want to watch what happens live, as they say, mm-hmm. there's any anything could happen live. Um, you know, you chip in a little bit to support all the hard work that not just you and I do. That's the least of it. You know, all the, the, the mice behind the scenes, making sure the wheels run on time, uh, and thing more importantly, um, that's, that's where, where all this goes to. So we appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, today's show is going to be bananas. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Vivek Chipper will be joining us to talk about his latest uh, piece in Jacobin's print issue. Uh, It's a fantastic piece in regard to how the left needs to organize uh, labor to move forward. Um, What is socialism um, supposed to be, especially post new left? So it's going to be a great discussion. I think it's really important in terms of thinking strategically about how to build on the momentum that the left has now. It's not much, but we can build on it. And I think that's important to to discuss. Um, We're also going to talk about how bipartisanship is absolute garbage. Uh, I was inspired by Ben Burgess's piece in Jacobin this week, Mm. where it's literally titled uh, Bipartisanship is Garbage. (laughs) I loved it, Um, but I'm going to expand on it a little bit for my decode. And Nando, what can the audience look forward to with yours? Well, I'll be discussing how this White House and the Democratic Party writ large is just thoroughly controlled by business interests and how if we want to achieve anything meaningful, we really just, much like Vivek Chibber writes in his piece in Jackman, we need to change the balance of power between labor and capital because right now, even amongst the Democrats, um, business just thoroughly calls the shots um, to a degree that's quite astonishing. So I'll get into it in my decode. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Before we get to all of that, why don't we discuss some of the big news this week? One of the biggest news stories for uh, those who care about electoral politics on the left. um, And that was the congressional race in Ohio's 11th district. So um, Matt Carp had a fascinating piece in Jacobin regarding the outcome of the Democratic primary race for Ohio's 11th district congressional seat. And what he found, even though, unfortunately, Nina Turner, the preferred candidate, you know, she lost by six points. 
was that there was a little bit of a silver lining in this race when you look at changing demographics that support the left or the candidate who's further to the left. And of course, in this case, it's Nina Turner. So as I mentioned, Nina Turner lost by six points. However, when you look at the demographic that overwhelmingly supported her, we see some progress even from the general election and who ended, or I should say primary election in the uh, 2020 presidential race, where Bernie seemed to struggle a little bit among um, black voters. Now, what Matt Carp writes in regard to this congressional race was that while Sanders famously failed to gain crucial support from black working class voters, a demographic that other progressives have struggled to win too, Turner held her own. Even in defeat, she may well have won more black working class votes than Cori Bush did in her victorious campaign in Missouri last summer. And so Carp uh, further breaks this down, giving some specific examples. For instance, on the whole, Turner won five of Cleveland's nine black majority wards and lost four, all of them narrowly, by less than two points. She won the city of Cleveland overall, as well as the black majority city of Akron. And then he gives the example um, of East Cleveland. So in East Cleveland, whose population is 90% black with a median income of just above 20,000 a year, Turner did lose to Brown by less than three points. In Cleveland's Ward 9, with a similar demographic profile, Turner won by four. And finally, I think this is just gets to the heart of um, what Matt Carp is trying to get to. The major, this is a major gain from the Sanders 2020 campaign, which lost all of these areas by 50 points or more. So Nando, what do you make of this? What is it about, um, you know, Nina Turner's candidacy in this race that has led to this uptick, the significant uptick in the black working class vote? Uh, I think it's hard to make a a sweeping generalization. I think that, um, Maybe perhaps it had something to do with with Nina Turner's just unique charisma and and personal appeal that that you can never discount that in especially in such a small uh, race. You know, this race was you know it was she lost by six points, but that's like what it was like four or five thousand votes um, overall right. because very few people voted in that. So um, you know, less than seventeen thousand people showed up to vote. Right. So it's a tiny, yeah. tiny uh, sample size, and in that you know personal charisma can have a uh, meaningful effect um, one one would hope that it goes beyond that that it's that that there was a um, you know that that the the grip that the black leadership class has on many black voters especially older working class black voters is maybe beginning to um, to, to loosen you know that 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 maybe that we're seeing that that trend kind of starting to to turn. Um, I think that the important thing to to think about um, is that the reason why CARP is focusing on this is because mm-hmm. it is kind of a problem for the socialist movement in the United States that it is so um, kind of dominated by uh, like middle class professionals, college educated people and, and does not have a root in, in the working class because at the end of the day, um, at a structural level, politicians answer to the constituents to whom they, you know, they owe their power to, right? And if a politician, um, you know, it, it owes their power to affluent professionals or you know, college-educated professionals, the concerns and the interests of those people will win out 
Um, and uh, whereas the concerns of other constituencies that did not deliver them the the you know the seat or the or the power that that they have um, will not be as listened to. Obviously, like in small numbers, like individual personalities kind of can you know buck those trends. But on the whole, like if you're talking about you know ten or twenty or thirty. Uh, 40, you know, politicians, you know, those trends will be will be pretty durable. So it is important to remake the class composition of of the left in the United States. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. And it's such a good point. I didn't want to interrupt you to correct myself. I said 17,000 voters. I mean, less than 17% of the electorate showed up to vote. So I wanted to make that incredibly important uh, clarification and correction. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. Um, But no, No going back to your point, you're you're absolutely right. You're a hundred percent right. Um, you know, I think what makes this race stand out is because it's I mean, it appears that it could be like an anomaly because the Democratic Party certainly does have a difficult time and an increasingly difficult time appealing to working class voters. They either don't show up to vote at all, or to be quite honest with you, if you look at um some other uh examples that are simultaneously happening, happening, like in California, they're losing um, some of the working class vote, especially among Latino voters, right? Yeah. I mean, Gavin Newsom is certainly losing a lot of support from uh, Latino voters in the state of California. You know, he's undergoing a recall election um, as we speak. And one thing that's really stood out was that, yeah, Latino voters are like, this is this party is not improving my life in any material way. And yeah. I think that the Democratic Party has taken that for granted, uh, the, the Latino vote and the black vote for granted for far too long. It's not a given. It's, you know, they can't just lean in on, oh, well, Republicans uh, hate you. Republicans don't like who you are because of your identity. So you have to vote for us. An increasing percentage of these voters are saying, no, I don't have to vote yeah. for you. And Democrats should be worried about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting because liberals and Democrats like lump all POC together, you know, and sometimes even women, you know, yes. women and POC are the same. You know, they all have they're all the same and they're all woke. Um, and that's that's what liberals uh, in the in the media kind of tell you all the time um, when when there's are profound differences between what's called the quote unquote the black vote and the quote unquote the Latino vote. Um for one, the uh, black political class is much more organized than the Latino political class and has exerted much more power um, in, in the last several decades. And crucially, uh, a lot of those have delivered real gains. I mean, a lot of the black leadership class were around during the civil rights era, you know, were leaders in, in the civil rights movement, um, which delivered meaningful gains for black people. So they're rewarded for that by with loyalty. Um, there is no equivalent uh, in, in the Latino votes. There is no, there is no Latino Jim Clyburn, you know, there is no Latino John Lewis um, in, in, you know, that that's been in Congress forever. That was around during some meaningful, uh, some major victory for Latino. Like that just doesn't exist. So Latinos are not as uh, sticky, if that makes sense. They're not as loyal to um, the leadership of the democratic party as a lot of black voters are. Um, and you're starting to see that, that, the effects of that one is that a lot of Latinos are abandoning the, the Democratic Party. I mean, we, we saw this during Trump, where his turnout with or his numbers with Latinos after four years of the wall and the you know xenophobia and whatever you know increased. They actually know. increased yeah. after four years. 
Um, and now you're seeing with Newsom, um, it, you know, if you look at the numbers, first of all, like you mentioned, the educational polarization of the of the Newsom recall um, in the polling is pretty striking in that educated voters, i.e., you know, it's not it's not a perfect correlation with class, but it, there's a pretty decent correlation with class are on, you know, supporting uh, Newsom, whereas, you know, people without a college degree are majority su- supporting the recall. And Latinos, crucially, a majority of Latinos in California are supporting the recall. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. And um, on the one hand, you know, you don't want Latinos to become Republicans. But on the other hand, Latinos in the Southwest in California delivered Nevada for Bernie, delivered California for Bernie. Um, they are kind of the political constituency to grab, uh, you know, for us on the left. And there there hasn't been really, I mean, AOC is obviously, uh, you know, she's, she's uh, uh, a Latino, but, but, but in the Southwest, there hasn't been a Bernie crowd. There hasn't been a Bernie crowd emerge in Arizona, Nevada, or California um, to, you know, that can, that can, you know, potentially become, um, you know, a powerful force in American politics. And, and, and if we, if, if we did manage to do that, I think that the effects would be, would be tremendous because what I said, they're kind of up for grabs. You know, it's ve- mm-hmm. it's been very, very difficult for the left to break the power of the black political class. I mean, we saw what happened with Jim Clyburn in, Sarah, in South Carolina, where he just absolutely destroyed Bernie's campaign. Um, and yeah. now he went into Ohio and was able to help uh, Chantel Brown destroyed Nina Turner. And, you know, like they have a lot of power in there is no equivalent for the Latino uh, for the Latino vote. And, um, you know, it, it should be kind of a mission for the left to, to sort of developing those candidates, especially in the American Southwest, where where there seems to be like there's like a lot of political opportunity there. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. All right. Well, um, why don't we tell our viewers a little bit about our sponsor and then mm. uh, do our decodes? Yes, as you know, the show is sponsored by Verso Books. And if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag, for as long as you are a subscriber. All memberships are 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month. And if you join in August, you'll get these four books A World Without Police. How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete by Gio Mar, Investigative Aesthetics, Conflicts and Commons in the Politics of Truth by Matthew Fuller and Ayala Wiseman, The Age of Precarity, Endless Crisis as an Art of Government by Dario Gentili, and then a new edition of The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State by Friedrich Engels with a new introduction by Jennifer Doyle. Yeah. All right. Get some angles, Check it out, baby. folks. Yes. Um, so, Nando, there's a lot of crossover today in our Decode segments, but I yes. think that this theme that we've got going is an important one. Um, the influence of, of corporate money, corporate influence overall, whether it be in Nina Turner's race or in this case, uh, the way that policy outcomes um, are decided in America. So take it away. Yeah, it's um, it's it's been you know it's been an interesting uh, first year of the Biden administration, and I think it's worth kind of looking at um, with a sort of big picture mentality of of what's going on, because you know Adolf Reed once wrote that what I think is the most succinct definition of neoliberalism, which is 
quote, capitalism that has effectively eliminated working class opposition. And when you look at the actions of the Biden administration and the Democratic Party's majorities in both chambers of Congress, you see that, in a sense, neoliberalism is alive and well. Now, much ink was spilled in the early days of the Biden administration comparing him to FDR, declaring that the era of austerity was over and that a transformational presidency was upon us. This was all due to the surprisingly large size of the COVID relief bill signed in March. It was a $1.9 trillion injection of cash into the economy without the usual deficit fear-mongering and appeals to bipartisanship. And while it's true that the COVID relief bill was much larger than Obama's pathetic little stimulus in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, the question becomes, why? Why is it that Biden was so much bolder in this one instance than his former boss? Well, we on the left are understandably tempted to take at least some of the credit for that. The twin Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns did turn millions of people in America onto socialism, and there is a plethora of independent left media, like this very program, that engages with people in a totally different way, and that may have had some effect. But in a very persuasive piece for Labor Notes that asks, quote, who holds the power in Joe Biden's White House? Neil Meyer writes that, Quote, the Biden stimulus bill was a big shift from Barack Obama's stingy response to the 2008 crisis and Donald Trump's tax cut orgy. But the question for working people is not where Biden's heart is at. It's this. Who holds the power in his administration? The answer to that question will determine the opportunities and limits for reform in the next four years. So far, every indication we have suggests that business is still calling the shots in Washington, D.C. He continues, quote, as soon as Biden was elected, the business world quickly closed ranks behind the administration and demanded a new and massive stimulus package. Michelle Gass, CEO of Kohl's, put the matter bluntly in explaining her support and the support of other major retailers for a new stimulus package targeted at regular people. Anything that puts money into the pockets of our consumers is a good thing. In early February, Biden organized a meeting of corporate leaders to discuss the stimulus package. Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan Chase, Doug McMillan of Walmart, Tom Donahue from the Chamber of Commerce, and Marvin Ellison from Lowe's were amongst the CEOs courted. Business rejoiced in its newfound closeness to the White House. Josh Bolton, CEO of the Business Roundtable, gushed about the administration. The communication with the business community is good, and the tone is good. Mike Summers of the American Petroleum Institute friend of the show, noted, my CEOs have been pleasantly surprised at the level of engagement that the industry has received so far. And when the stimulus bill passed in March, business rejoiced. The aforementioned business roundtable put out a poll of CEOs that was positively orgasmic. I just heard Wolfgang Buck talking about the light at the end of the tunnel, and you're sensing a similar optimism now from CEOs in this business roundtable CEO economic survey just out right now. Take a look at some of these numbers, and you get a sense of what I'm talking about. Uh, start with plans for hiring. That's up 30 points from the fourth quarter of 2020. Plans for capital investment also up 16 points from the fourth quarter of 2020. Sales expectations up 17 points from the fourth quarter of 2020. GDP growth. The estimate here is 3.7% now among these CEOs surveyed by the Business Roundtable. That's also up from where they were in terms of their prediction at the end of last year. And then here's a a mind-boggling number. 72% of the CEOs surveyed here say that conditions have already recovered for their company by the end of uh, 2021. So that is, they're saying that they are out of the woods or close to it at this point. 71% of the CEOs 
uh, responding to that uh, with that affirmation, really, of where the economy is going here. So all that coming, David, as we get this massive injection of new relief into the economy from Washington. So some cause for optimism here among the CEOs, David. Now, don't get me wrong. The COVID relief bill was pretty good bill by the standards of Washington. It was also supported overwhelmingly by the public. So business was on board. The public was on board. That usually means that a bill sails through. This is right around the time that you began to see the comparisons with FDR. NPR wrote, can Joe Biden join FDR and LBJ in the Democratic Party's pantheon? David Gergen, the dean of Washington's conventional wisdom, wrote a piece for CNN titled, the three striking similarities between FDR and Biden. <laughs> and then The Economist wrote, Joe Biden was a boring candidate. He now draws comparisons to FDR. But there was one major difference between Joe Biden and FDR, one that was not noted in any of these pieces. And that is the organized political power of the working class. Remember, if neoliberalism is capitalism without working class opposition, well, in the 1930s, you saw the exact opposite. There was a crisis of capitalism that was met by a large, organized, and militant working class with powerful labor unions, not just here in the United States, but throughout the developed world, ex exerting pressure on capital through strikes and even the threat of revolution. And that is what gave us the New Deal, not just FDR's personal political talent and fondness for the working man. So, as the spring wore on, business began to put the squeeze on Biden's so-called transformational agenda. And that's because Biden's next legislative priority was a massive infrastructure bill. But the difference this time is that Biden planned to fund it through a modest increase in the corporate tax rate. And business did not like that. No, 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 no. Here's what the CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce had to say. So you're applauding the infrastructure package and the investment in our nation's infrastructure, but not the corporate tax hike. So, so how should this be paid for? Deficit financed? But that's exactly the right question and the one that we need government officials to come together and solve, right? There are lots of ways to pay for this over time, the way we do a lot of investments. There are bonds, there are user fees, there's extending out the time we use to get that return. But this is the hard work of governing, and it's the right thing to do, not raise taxes at just the time that businesses are getting back on their feet and we're ready to have an economic recovery. Can't raise taxes. So after businesses united opposition to the tax increases, Meyer writes in Labor Notes, the administration immediately began to cave. Right after announcing the plans, Biden officials responded to corporate pushback by insisting that they were open to scaling back their ambitions. Brian Deese from Biden's National Economic Council told Fox News Sunday, quote, if people think this is too aggressive, then we'd like to hear what their plans are. It's something we want to have a conversation about by people. Deese presumably meant corporate leaders. Speaking to more than 50 CEOs from Google, AT&T, Dell, Ford, Intel and other companies, Biden's Secretary of Commerce said of negotiations with the corporate world, I've been encouraged. Nobody likes to talk about the pay fors, but there is room for compromise. It seems now that Biden and his team have reached that compromise. The White House dramatically scaled back its ambitions in order to get a package that even some Republicans could support. A corporate tax hike is nowhere to be found in that proposal. But business does, in general, like improved in infrastructure. They need decent roads to transport their goods and so on. But they certainly don't want to pay for it through taxes. So how do they want to fund it? Well, they like to call something they like to call user fees. There's been some talk of flexibility on that corporate tax rate going maybe not all the way up to 28 to 25, some leniency on the multinational part of it. Would any 
higher rate be, be acceptable according to, to the business group or just no? I think what's going to be important is figuring out what the best policy is, how to get our crumbling infrastructure to a more competitive place, prioritize those investments and figure out how to pay for it. I think there are ways that we can come to the table and negotiate, but only if that's done in a bipartisan way and with business at the table. Which is the best tax to increase as we as we sit here today, Suzanne? I don't know that we ever think there's a best tax to increase at the U.S. Chamber, but I do think that in this case, it's probably more fair to think about user fees and gas taxes so that people who are actually advantaged by the investment of the infrastructure help pay for it over time. I love those anchors questions. Like, is there any tax that you'd like or just no? Well, of course, user fees and gas taxes are just a way to pass the cost away from businesses and on to regular people. But it wasn't just the Chamber of Commerce. That sentiment was echoed also by the CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. Uh, you've been pretty supportive of a lot of the president's initiatives in, in this first 75 days. But this idea of a higher corporate tax rate really did seem to be a bridge too far. Why? Well, um, interesting way to say that, a bridge too far when we're talking about infrastructure, Carl. Look, we very much uh, <laughs> are supportive we're very supportive of the president's call for a for a bold investment in infrastructure. That is that is absolutely necessary. It has been decades, generations even, since this country has invested in it. So he's right on target there. The the proposed way to pay for that, raising the corporate tax ta- or, or raising taxes on businesses, it's a job killer, plain and simple. And so we want to work with Congress to come up with other ways to finance uh, the the president's proposal. As soon as the Congress figures out exactly what they want to spend money on, we have some proposals in our building to win proposal at the NAM that focuses on user fees and and bonding and public private partnerships. And and there's all kinds of ways we can pay for infrastructure. We've been talking about this again for generations. So we really need to get this done and done right in a way that doesn't kill American jobs and manufacturing jobs. So business doesn't want to increase the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Remember, remember, this would still be below the Obama era rate of 35%. Instead, they want user fees. So what does the Biden administration do? Well, they scrap the corporate tax increase and introduce, you guessed it, user fees. This is from Yahoo News. Quote, the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure accord would institute a multi-year national motor vehicle per mile user fee pilot program that without future intervention from the White House could potentially violate one of Joe Biden's previously stated red lines. Top White House officials emphatically stated for months that paying for the infrastructure investments by indexing gas taxes to inflation or instituting new electric vehicle mileage fees were hard red lines for the president on the grounds that they would raise taxes on people earning less than $400,000 per year. Yet, the new per mile user fee pilot outlined in Section 13002 of the bill does leave those people open to tax vulnerabilities pegged to personal vehicle mileage. And this dynamic plays out again and again and again with issue after issue. On the campaign trail, for example, Democrats made a lot of noise about the student debt crisis in this country. They could easily scrap most of it, if not all of it, with a stroke of a pen if they wanted to, but they're not going to do that. And now Nancy Pelosi has come out flat out against it. Ryan Grimm and Ken Kleppenstein have the goods over at The Intercept. They write, quote, 
The drive to persuade President Joe Biden to cancel student debt took a major hit last week when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi stunned Congress with a surprise statement in opposition. The move may put her at odds with much of the public and the Democratic Party, but it aligns her with Democratic mega donors Stephen and Mary Swig, the billionaire scions of the Bay Area's oldest real estate dynasty, who have deep ties to the California representative. Stephen Swig has also long served as a treasurer for Pelosi in her fundraising efforts. Hmm. In November, after Biden's election and amid increased pressure to cancel student debt, the Swigs quietly circulated a memo among key Capitol Hill figures, making the dubious case that debt cancellation at the executive level level is illegal. The argument in the memo gets much of its weight by virtue of the wealthy couple who produced it, as the Swigs are not just major funders of progressive nonprofits but also have the significantly bankrolled Pelosi and her House Democratic caucus. On the issue of unemployment insurance, Democrats have signaled that they will allow most of it to expire in September. According to a study, as many as 7.5 million people will lose their unemployment benefits on, of all days, Labor Day. But there has been no talk about extending the unemployment benefits further. It It really looks like the Biden administration has decided that COVID relief is just done in September, and that's that. It sounds like they've been listening to the complaints of restaurant owners who claim that they cannot find workers because of the dreaded unemployment insurance. And the New York Times podcast, The Daily, spoke to some of these restaurant owners, and here's what they had to say. Where do you think everyone went? What do you think is happening? Everyone is getting free money sitting at home. That's all the reason is. (laughs) It's very clear. The government is just giving out so much help. You know, they're basically making more money to stay home. If I was getting 600 a week, I would not be going to work either. I would be chilling out with my money. <laughs> this unemployment, they make people more lazy. People rather stay home and watch TV than go back to work. In a world of capital and labor, capital has the upper hand, perhaps more than ever before. But working class opposition to capital can have tangible effects. Let's take the eviction moratorium as a case in point. Real estate interests desperately want to end the eviction moratorium. But the National Apartment Association called out eviction moratoriums, tweeting the idea that we want people to lose their housing is simply untrue. This is an industry of people and homes, not empty buildings. Adding, the eviction moratorium is an unfunded government mandate that forces housing providers to deliver a costly service without compensation and saddles renters with an insurmountable debt. And Lee Fang at The Intercept writes, quote, the real estate industry has been vocally opposed to the CDC's moratorium. Lobbying records show real estate groups spent millions of dollars over the last year attempting to weaken or repeal eviction moratoriums and other landlord-related restrictions relating to the pandemic. Last December, the National Apartment Association, which you saw in that previous clip, a trade group representing landlords joined a federal lawsuit seeking to overturn the eviction moratorium order. And last month, the National Apartment Association filed a new suit designed to recover economic losses incurred by the CDC's eviction moratorium. Lee looked at the earnings report for some of these real estate companies and listened to calls with investors. And they all spoke openly about how desperate they were to evict tenants. Last Thursday, UDR Inc., a real estate trust that owns 149 apartment complexes, also released its earnings reports showing dazzling growth. The company reported strong financials, including increased revenue and a 97.5% occupancy rate, a new high watermark. Alexander Kalmus, a senior associate with Zellman & Associates, during the call pressured UDR on the end of various restrictions 
uh, on landlords. UDR executives quickly chimed in, explaining that the firm would move swiftly on evictions once the moratoriums are gone. We have about 400 people that if we could evict today, we would, replied Michael Lacey, UDR senior vice president of property operations, during a general discussion of the company's second quarter earnings. So as the eviction moratorium was set to expire, Democrats in the White House and the leadership in Congress were doing essentially nothing. And Andrew Perez and Joel Warner at the Daily Poster reported that, quote, House Democrats' super PAC took in a million dollars from the chairman of a massive apartment rental company in June before letting the federal eviction moratorium expire over the weekend amid a COVID-19 pandemic that continues to surge. So as the eviction moratorium was set to expire and millions were going to be... uh, sent on the street, there was a bit of opposition. Comes amid increased pressure for another extension from the White House by people like our next guest, Congresswoman Cori Bush, who at one time in her life was homeless. She has spent the last few nights sleeping on the Capitol steps. Now, Cori Bush's inspired bit of political theater was it was crucial in getting the administration to act and extend the moratorium through October. It's a tiny, tiny victory for what is already a half measure to begin with. But it was an example of how even a slight bit of working class opposition can have meaningful effects. Imagine if we had large, militant, powerful labor unions. So as we look at politics in the near future, we are always tempted to focus on the day to day fights and the personal uh, the personalities of individual politicians. What we cannot do is lose sight of the structural nature of all of this. Our only hope for a better world is to change the balance of power between capital and labor. Under capitalism, capital will always have a major advantage, but there have been moments where a more powerful and organized working class has been able to achieve real victories. And we also have to be clear-eyed about the Democratic Party. I want to go back to Neil Meyer's piece. He points out just how thoroughly business has gone over to the Democrats. He writes, quote, a Yale poll of directors at America's largest companies found that 77 percent plan to vote for Joe Biden. CEOs also coupled their support for the Democratic Party with their wallets. Data suggests that CEOs from larger companies giving to Biden outnumbered those giving to Trump two to one. Large donors as a whole accounted for 61 percent of Biden's war chest. This is coupled with the equally troubling trend of national security psychos like James Comey and Bill Kristol and various CIA spooks going full Democrat. And look how easily the Democratic Party establishment was able to shrug off Nina Turner's campaign. This is not to say that we should all become Republicans either. I find the arguments for a current realignment unpersuasive. What is clear is that the avenues to achieve progressive change through the electoral arena are incredibly muddled. Our focus has to be on on organizing working-class power. If that happens, the politics will sort themselves out. Well, Nando, the uh, good news is we're going to interview Vivek Chibber about organizing workers. Uh, That's the interview today. But, man, that was such a great segment. Um, And I have a lot to say, but I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, Let me just start off by addressing – it was a small part of your Decode segment, but it, it was the part that like literally filled me with rage um, (laughs) because I had done a decode segment on it earlier and it's the user fees tied to mileage. So think about that, right? The corporations don't want any type of tax hike, even though during the pandemic uh, they were taken care of. Many of them are already doing pretty well. Yes, they're bitching and complaining about a labor shortage, but are unwilling to uh, provide the working conditions and the pay necessary to bring workers back. Um, but you know, the whole thing about the user fees is we don't want to pay taxes. We want to implement a regressive tax that impacts 
everyone, regardless of what their income is, right? And so think about the people who end up driving the most to and from work. It's people who can't afford to live close to work in these urban areas, right? So they literally have to move an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes two hours away from work and then commute back and forth, okay? The the housing prices obviously have a lot to do with this. And then they're gonna be further punished with these user fees, which are based on mileage. I mean, it's incredibly infuriating and I just wanted to share my thoughts on that. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, going back to, yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah, right on, girl. <laughs> it's just, anyway. But anyway, uh, just to focus on your overall thesis here, you're absolutely right. And what's incredible about the corporate interest capture of the Democratic Party is that the Democratic Party is sick with this virus that's literally killing them, right? Not not literally killing them, but like killing their chances at a future. Uh, It kills their candidacy in in many cases. Yes, at this point, you can see um, a, a correlation between corporate money and the ability of a candidate to be able to win, whether it's a Democrat or Republican. But increasingly, the Democratic Party is losing support among working people. We know that. But more importantly, you have the Republican Party that is essentially rigging the electoral system further to their advantage through gerrymandering, through uh, state laws that suppress the vote. And the only chance that Democrats have in in fighting back against that is by passing a voting rights bill. I would, of course, prefer um, the For the People Act, which is a more robust piece of legislation that reforms elections and also addresses money in politics. Democrats have a self-preservation interest in passing that legislation, but corporate interests don't want it. And so the or and, and more importantly, in the Senate, Democrats would have to do away with the legislative filibuster in order to pass that legislation. They're unwilling to do away with the filibuster because corporate interests love the legislative filibuster. I mean, the Senate is where policy goes to die, and they know that. They love that. And so that's part of the reason why you have corporate Democrats like Manchin, Warner, Tester, Cinema talking about the importance of maintaining the legislative filibuster in the Senate. It's not about bipartisanship. It's 100% about blocking the legislation that their corporate donors do not want, even if it means that it's a political suicide for Democrats in the near future. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean... Listen, there, there. It's this is a, a newish trend. I mean, it. I mean, newish meaning that started around the 1970s and has continued through today. The um, corporatization of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party. I mean, it, in the in the United States, there's always been you know two largely business parties. That's that's not new. But because of the presence of large labor unions, um, that exerted meaningful political int- uh, influence. The Democratic Party was a meaningful countervailing force to a, a Republican Party that was just, you know, thoroughly the party of big business. Um, and that's when the Democratic Party delivered those gains to people. But as, you know, neoliberalism and, you know, things like the Democratic Leadership Council in the 1980s, Bill Clinton, you know, all these awful people um adopted a different pose for Democrats, abandoned labor unions, and sort of welcomed um, 
Wall Street class, uh, professional mm-hmm. uh, people, uh, you know, the educated suburbanites and things like that, which they actively court all the time. They, they love those voters. Um, the effect is uh, of, of a new type of politics in which there is this kind of professional party in which college educated people like ourselves, like we can't, we're not going to vote Republican, right? We're just not going to do that. Like, right. this is not going to happen. Um, and so in, in, it's the perfect scenario for them because there's this like incredibly reactionary, revanchist, disgusting Republican party that, you know, unites the worst elements of society. Um, and then this just other party that is kind of urbane and educated, but is also fully in bed with wall street and increasingly like national security, <laughs> uh, elements. And because totally. they were so horrified by Trump, I mean, un, un, you know, understandably. Um, so like the, the, our avenues are so bleak and so limited if we're focused on that arena, it doesn't mean we shouldn't challenge elections. We should, you know, support Nina Turner. And, you know, I like I, after reading Carb's piece, I got the feeling that should Nina run again in the next uh, whatever the next election is, we in Congress there every two years. So it's, um, you know, as long as she has to wait six years for, for, for the Senate seat to open up or something, um, you get the sense that she might, she might be able to pull it off, especially in a non mm-hmm. kind of middle of the summer, uh, special election instead of like, a you know, you got the sense that maybe she could pull it off. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it, it's, it's bleak. You know, we, if, if this is what happens when your politics has no, uh, meaningful labor power. This is what mm-hmm. happened. This is the effect. You have two parties that are completely unresponsive to um, any sort of real change. And the, the mechanisms that we have to exert pressure are so limited. You know, this poor woman has to yep. freaking sleep on the Capitol steps just to get the, the smallest bit of relief for uh, for renters. I mean, it's just it's that's yeah. that's what is required um, just to get the tiniest. I mean, it's so tiny. Um, but I know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's literally the only action you can get, um, in a positive direction, uh, in a system that again is beholden to corporate donors, regardless of what party we're talking, which party we're talking about. And look, that's, you very briefly mentioned, um, the personality stuff, like politics is now devolved into personality. That's what Peter Mayer wrote about the late political scientist. Yeah. Politics has become culture wars, cults of personality, And so on one hand, I can't begrudge people for sometimes um, wrongly like losing focus on what matters to to try to decipher what's in a politician's heart. But you said it best. It actually doesn't matter. Right. Politics is all about incentives and disincentives. People are people. They're going to uh, look out for their own self-preservation and for their own interests. And the question is, who has more sway or which group has more sway over these parties and over these specific candidates? And uh, with no labor power or weak labor power, corporate interests are always going to have more sway. And, you know, when you look at what the intended role of government really is under neoliberalism, It's not that government doesn't have a role. It's just that government is meant to interfere on behalf of corporate interests, not on Mm -hmm. behalf of workers or the American people. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. All right. I love that segment. So good. Um, Well, mine's a little similar, but I'm I'm attacking um, things from a a different angle. And that has to do with this um, hollow argument regarding bipartisanship and the need for unity in Congress. 
Bipartisanship is garbage. That's the straightforward and accurate title of Ben Burgess's latest piece in Jacobin, which I certainly enjoyed. I enjoyed it so much that it inspired me to want to elaborate on it even further. So definitely check out his piece. But I want to talk about how bipartisanship was the scapegoat when the Obama administration dropped the mere notion of providing a public option in the Affordable Care Act. The alleged need for bipartisanship also paved the way for the weak-sauce Wall Street reform bill known as Dodd-Frank following the 2008 economic collapse. Bipartisanship also worked its magic on Obama's foreign policy decisions, which only expand, which he only expanded upon, um, you know, in the failed Bush era, from the failed Bush era. Um, and, you know, he, of course, added this dollop of uh, drone strikes in addition to what Bush was already doing. Now, in the first two years of the Obama administration, the president had a lot of power. Uh, He not only had political capital as a newly elected president, but Democrats held control uh, of both the House and the Senate. They had all the levers of power at their disposal, and they decided not to use it. So when they failed to deliver for their base, the consequences were clear in the 2010 midterms. Campaign 2010 proved to be an historic election for the Republican Party and a decisive defeat for President Obama and many of his fellow Democrats. Angry voters flocked to the GOP, which will take control of the House of Representatives. CBS News estimates that the new Congress will have 235 Republicans and 181 Democrats. Some races are still undecided, with the GOP gaining at least 58 seats. The Democrats will keep control of the Senate just barely with a much smaller majority as Republicans gained at least six seats with three races still undecided. CBS News estimates the Senate will have 49 Democrats, two independents and 46 Republicans come January. I mean, it was a thrashing, a shellacking. And Obama was asked what his feelings were about it. Do you see 19 state legislatures go to the other side, uh, governorships in swing states, the Democratic Party set back. Mm-hmm. What does it feel like? feels bad. It feels bad. Now, did Obama learn any lessons? I mean, when you fail to deliver for your base, when you pander to the Republican Party after the incredibly unpopular Bush administration you should probably learn to move away from that ideology of bipartisanship, right? So did he learn anything? My goal is to make sure that we don't have a huge spike in taxes for middle-class families. So uh, my goal is to sit down with uh, Speaker-elect Boehner and Mitch McConnell, like Harry and Nancy, sometime uh, in the next few weeks. And see where we can move forward uh, in a way that, uh, first of all, does no harm, uh, that extends those tax cuts that are very important for middle-class families, also extends those provisions that are important to encourage businesses to invest. Now, as we know, the increase, uh, or I should say the uh, extension of Bush-era tax cuts did not overwhelmingly benefit working people. They were they benefited uh, the people at the very top, individuals who are already high-income earners, and that's who 
Obama was looking out for. But what's incredible about all of this is that even after the Democratic Party suffered the consequences of failing to deliver for their voters, and even though their insane scapegoat of, well, we needed bipartisanship, we had to try to unify the country was hollow, most people knew it, the corporate media continued celebrating the notion of bipartisan legislation. In fact, they even prioritized it in 2012 during the presidential election. Here's an example of how one of the debates were. As president, I will sit down on day one, actually the day after I get elected, I'll sit down with leaders, the Democratic leaders, as well as Republican leaders, and continue, as we did in my state, we met every Monday for a couple hours, talked about the issues and the challenges in, the, in, the, in our state in that case. We have to work on a collaborative basis. My philosophy has been, I will take ideas from anybody, Democrat or Republican, as long as they're advancing the cause of making middle-class families stronger and giving ladders of opportunity to the middle class. That's how we cut taxes for middle-class families and small businesses. That's how we cut a trillion dollars of spending that wasn't advancing that cost. Ooh, yeah, tax cuts and austerity. You know, voters absolutely love that, right? Now, Obama went on to win uh, his re-election campaign. He won in 2012. Uh, the 2014 midterms were not good for the Democrats because they continued to fail to deliver on what they campaigned for. They failed to materially improve the lives of the very people who elected them in these positions of power in the first place. And instead of taking bold action um, as the most powerful party in the country, uh, they just decided to continue caving to Republicans. Now, they didn't cave to Republicans in the interest of bipartisanship. They caved to Republicans because Republicans represented corporate interests. And increasingly throughout the decades, Democrats uh, were also looking out for the best interests of corporations and the very, very wealthy. So fast forward to where we are today, where Democrats do find themselves in somewhat of a similar situation as they did in 2008. Now, there are smaller margins uh, in the uh, House of Representatives and in the Senate. Um, there's a very slim majority for Democrats, but they do have all the levers of power, with the exception of the Supreme Court. If they wanted to, they could easily pass legislation that they want. They have tools in their toolbox in order to do that. Uh, the arguments that we hear in regard to the Senate parliamentarian are honestly irrelevant because the executive branch, uh, Joe Biden, can easily throw out the Senate parliamentarian. He can unilaterally fire her. And he can also apply pressure to Senate Democrats to do away with the legislative filibuster so legislation doesn't get blocked in the Senate, it could actually pass. Now, instead of that bold action from the most powerful party in the country, we get garbage like this. We agreed on infrastructure. We made serious compromises on both ends. Uh, there is, uh, and they'll, they'll give you the numbers. But we did not, they did not, and I understand their position, Republicans and this group did not want to go along with any of my family plan issues, the child care tax credits, the human infrastructure that I talk about. We've all agreed that uh, none of us got what we all that we wanted. I clearly didn't get all I wanted. They gave more than I think maybe they were inclined to give in the first place. But this reminds me of the days we used to get an awful lot done up in the United States Congress. We actually worked with them. We had bipartisan deals. Bipartisan deals means compromise. Honestly, even Joe Biden didn't 
seem too excited about the bipartisan deal. It seemed like he had a really hard time selling this bipartisan deal. And for good reason. As Ben Burgess points out in his Jacobin piece, the gap between Biden's initial infrastructure proposal and the bipartisan bill is a catastrophe in human terms. What it has going for it is bipartisanship. So why don't we take a look at what bipartisanship looks like or what bipartisanship leads to in regard to the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan version of it. The original bill, for instance, had $387 billion for housing, schools, and buildings. The bipartisan version has $0. The original infrastructure bill had $400 billion for home and community-based care. The bipartisan version has zero. Even clean energy tax credits, an absurdly inadequate response to the climate crisis, plummeted from $363 billion to $0. Other climate measures were also scrapped. And we also can't forget the fun asset recycling scheme in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, Uh, the same one that I did a decode about a few weeks ago. Basically, it would privatize public infrastructure So corporations not only manage that infrastructure, but implement all sorts of fees and tolls that amount to regressive taxes. I mean, it's so bad that even AOC mentioned it during a recent conversation with Jake Tapper. And I want to be clear that the investments in the bipartisan bill are not all, you know, candy land. There are some of these, quote unquote, pay fors that are very alarming, that we need to see the language on. For example, some of the language around privatizing public infrastructure, putting toll roads, leasing public infrastructure to private entities are very concerning and should be concerning to every American. So we really need to see that language and see what's put in there uh, until, until it reaches, you know, when it reaches the House. Bipartisan doesn't always mean that that it's in the interest of the public good, frankly. Sometimes there's a lot of corporate lobbyist giveaways in some of these bills. In fact, bipartisanship typically means that the end result of the policy is not in the interest of the public good. More often than not, because of corporate influence, the outcome of these policy decisions ends up benefiting corporations and hurting workers. And that's certainly what we see in the bipartisan version of the infrastructure bill. Now, progressives in the House claim that they will block that bill unless there is a clear path forward for the more robust $3.5 trillion reconciliation version of the infrastructure uh, deal, which is, or bill, which is supposed to uh, pass along with the bipartisan deal. We'll see what happens. I think that that strategy uh, of, of splitting up the infrastructure uh, proposal into two separate bills is a disastrous strategy. But for the purposes of this discussion, let's focus on the hollow nature of um, these bipartisan arguments. Um, When it comes to calls for bipartisanship, American voters obviously don't even care, really, uh, who Senator Joe Manchin is inviting to his COVID-riddled boat parties. Americans don't care about how friendly lawmakers are with one another. They don't care about unity in Congress. If anything, they care about what their elected officials are providing in terms of materially benefiting their lives, improving their lives. They care about results and how government can um, step in once they're being abused in their workplaces or when they're being paid too little. Um, And when it comes to bread and butter issues, Democrats tend to abandon them in the honor of bipartisanship. 
which we all know is BS. So, for instance, a new poll for the Alliance for Retired Americans found that older voters want Medicare to negotiate directly with pharmaceutical companies. Medicare isn't al- Medicare cannot do that as we speak, which is insane. So um, when you look at the results of this poll, you see that there's actually a lot of bipartisanship or there's a lot of agreement and unity within the electorate on bread and butter issues. So conducted by the firm Lake Research Partners, the new poll shows that 87 percent of voters over the age of 65, including 89 percent of Democrats and 87 percent of Republicans and 81 percent of independents, support allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, which it is currently barred from doing under federal law. By the way, how do you think that federal law came about in the first place? Corporate interests. Now, uh, would these voters switch their political party, their, their party loyalties in order to support a candidate who would fight to ensure that Medicare can negotiate drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies. Well, the survey actually found that 31% of Republican seniors would be more likely to vote for a Democrat who supports ongoing congressional efforts to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices, indicating a substantial political upside for candidates who back the idea, which would lower federal spending by uh, an estimated $456 billion over 10 years and potentially save patients thousands of dollars. Now, when you look at the Democratic Party, the results are even more stark. So 60% of Democratic seniors said they would be less likely to support a Democratic candidate opposed to this popular reform. Now, progressive members of Congress are attempting to include a provision in the infrastructure bill that would allow for Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies. They also want to expand Medicare through a provision in the more robust $3.5 trillion reconciliation version of the infrastructure bill. Now, we'll see what happens, but what's fascinating is how corporate interests are already fighting against that. And we'll go back to that in just a second. But let's go to Joe Manchin, who's been front and center in this fight to maintain the Senate filibuster. He claims maintaining the Senate filibuster is important. It pressures lawmakers to work together. It leads toward unity. And we want that, right? Americans care so much about passing legislation in a bipartisan way, regardless of what the outcome of that actual policy is. Obviously, we know that's not true, but... Let's hear a little bit from Senator Manchin himself and how he tries to advocate for maintaining the Senate filibuster. And I've always been about bipartisanship. I've always tried to work in a bipartisan way, and I've voted in a bipartisan way in the last 10 years of the Senate. So I'm doing what I have always done. Let's unite this country. We don't need to be divided any further. What the White House would say is on an issue, let's say, infrastructure, which is key to the president's economic agenda, what they would say is there's a way to do this with Democrats alone. It's the same method that was used to pass President Trump's tax cut. But you won't agree to do that. And since you won't agree to do that, it takes all of the leverage away from the White House. Now, in order to pass an infrastructure package, it requires 60 votes to get past a filibuster. So it's not just that you're, you want bipartisanship. They would argue what you're doing is basically putting all the negotiating leverage in the hands of those 10 Republicans that would be needed for the president to pass anything. Uh, we need to work within the framework of what we have. There's ways that we can pr- uh, you know, move forward. Now, behind closed doors, while talking to billionaire donors, 
Joe Manchin makes clear that it's actually nearly impossible to pass anything in a bipartisan fashion. So he calls on them to entice, or a more appropriate word is bribe, Republican senators with future job offers if they vote along with Democrats on the January 6th commission. Notice that this isn't a discussion about any type of economic policy or the infrastructure bill or coronavirus relief funds. He wants to entice Republicans to vote in favor of a January 6th commission to investigate what happened in the Capitol because that investigation doesn't upset corporate interests. That investigation is something that both Democrats and Republicans can vote in favor of without upsetting their corporate donors. And so this video that was um, provided to us by The Intercept gives you a sense of what Manchin's true intentions and motivations are. This is him speaking to uh, the billionaire donors in a leaked video. Right now, what I'm asking for, I need to go back. I need to find three more Republican, good Republican senators that will vote for the uh, commission so the least we can tamp them down to what people say Republicans won't even do the simple lift. The common sense of basically voting to do a commission that was truly bipartisan. Uh, you know, so once the people, and it really, it, it, it just really uh, uh, emboldens the uh, far left saying, I showed you, I, you know, uh, how's that bipartisan working for you now, Joe? Uh, those are the hard things. That's why I need help, Dan. Dan, here's the thing. Let me just tell you. Okay, let, I'll give you some names here. Roy Blunt is a great, just a good friend of mine, a great guy, okay? You would like to think that Roy's retiring. If some of you all who might be working with Roy in his next life could tell him that it would be nice to help our country. You hear what he's saying, right? Hey, Roy Blunt, my Republican colleague, why don't you offer him a job for uh, when his term is up? As long as he votes in favor of the January 6th commission, so we can give Americans this illusion of bipartisanship working in Congress. That way, it'll bolster Joe Manchin's argument for maintaining the legislative filibuster in the Senate, which effectively serves as a giant roadblock to passing any legislation that benefits working people. I mean, it is so clear and so blunt. And that audio was completely ignored by the corporate media because of course it was. Of course it was. They're not same corporate donors fund advertising on corporate media. So, of course, they're not going to talk about that audio. But it's important to know what Manchin's real motivations are. Corporate Democrats want to use bipartisanship or arguments of bipartisanship as a cover for why they can't pass legislation that actually improves people's lives. And they don't do it because they don't believe in that legislation. Who knows what they believe? They do it on behalf of corporate interests. Manchin's calls for bipartisanship or partisan, bipartisan negotiations resulted in more means testing and less weekly financial assistance for unemployment benefits in the coronavirus relief bill. He claimed that he was, you know, cutting down that assistance because he wanted negotiations in a bipartisan way. So he wanted to, you know, compromise with his Republican colleagues. But did a single Republican lawmaker vote in favor of that legislation? No, not a single one, either in the House or the Senate. Calls for bipartisanship, again, provide cover for what corporate interests really want. And we can take a quick look at the campaign funding that took place during the 2020 election. 
So Kim Moody for uh, Against the Current writes that according to Open Secrets, it cost about $14 billion up and down the ballot, which was over twice what it spent in 2016. In fact, fundraising and spending are pretty good indicators of which party is likely to win in any given election cycle. So in 2020, Democrats outspent Republicans $6.9 billion to $3.8 billion, deregulated outside donations, mostly from wealthy individuals, not including those to party committees, uh, came to $3 billion, of which uh, two-thirds were via super PACs. Now, the two major parties themselves raised another $3.6 billion, much of it from wealthy donors as well. And as we know, these giant fundraising figures from corporate donors pale in comparison to the influence that the average American voter has. It also pales in comparison to the campaign contributions that unions were able to, to provide. So in contrast, social welfare and union spending combined scarcely past the $100 million mark. Open Secrets calculated that only about 22% of funds raised by all candidates came from small donations of $200 or less. And if you look at Congress specifically, of the 537 congressional candidates that Open Secrets reported on in uh, 2020, only 12 got half or more of their contributions from small donors, while only 37 got a third or more from that source. The other 500 relied primarily on larger donations. So in other words, as Kim Moody states, the nation's rich paid for the election and they will be its major beneficiaries. And we're seeing that play out already. We saw it play out in how the Biden coronavirus relief bill was cut down, cut back, and included additional means testing that was unnecessary. We're seeing it happen with the negotiations taking place in the infrastructure uh, proposal. And we're going to continue seeing it because at the end of the day, when you don't have strong labor and you have corporate interests funding both parties handsomely, the best interests of working people are not really considered. The end result tends to be policy that overwhelmingly benefits the wealthy, overwhelmingly benefits businesses. Now, going back to that poll showing that older voters would literally switch parties to support a candidate uh, who would allow Medicare to directly negotiate with pharmaceutical companies to lower drug prices, um, there are some progressive lawmakers who are trying to include a provision in the infrastructure bill that would do just that. However, this is where corporate interests come into play because uh, Jake Johnson over at Common Dreams writes that despite its popularity, the proposal is likely to run up against some opposition from big pharma-backed Democrats in the House. In a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in May, a group of Democrats led by Representatives Scott Peters and Jake um, Auchincloss expressed opposition to H.R. 3, which would empower Medicare to directly negotiate prices for a limited number of prescription drugs. When Big Pharma is funding the campaigns of these corporate Democrats, they are going to fight against what their own voters overwhelmingly support. We see that happening in the Democratic Party today. We're going to continue seeing that happen with the Democratic Party. But the good news is, There is a way out. There is a way to build labor power in order to mitigate the impact of corporate rule and corporate money. 
And the only way to really do that is to get involved in organizing your workplace, something that we'll have a lengthier discussion about with our guest today, Vivek Chibber. Uh, but before we get to that, Nando, I wanted to bring you in and get your thoughts. Well, I, I, I think that, you know, it's funny that bipartisanship uh, always uh, works when increasing the defense budget uh, every year. That's uh, that 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 that's never an issue. But I think we should I think we should bring in our guest uh, Vivek uh, now because uh, I know he's been waiting patiently. So um, why don't we bring in uh, our guest Vivek Chibber, professor of sociology at New York University, um, editor of Catalyst, uh, the 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 sister publication of Jacobin, uh, and one of my intellectual heroes, I must say. Vivek, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that's uh, nice of you to say thank you, and good seeing you again, Anna and uh, Nanda. Good to meet you. Pleasure. Good seeing you too. Um, just real quick, I wanted to plug um, some more of your work, uh, Vivek. Uh, he's also the author of Postcolonial Theory um, and the Specter of Capital, and uh, he's the author of a forthcoming book, uh, The Class Matrix Social Theory After the Cultural Turn. So really looking forward to reading that one. Um, now, Vivek, we, you know, we've been talking about the sad state of the Democratic Party, uh, the very obvious corporate rule that we're all experiencing right now. Um, but you wrote a piece in the print edition of Jacobin Magazine regarding, you know, what needs to be done in regard to organizing labor in order to win, in order to actually have some leverage in um, these policy fights. And also, of course, to improve um, working conditions and pay and all of that. Uh, but before we get to what you think should be done st strategically or strategy wise, I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, the last time we had a significant American left wing in this country, like in the 1960s. Um, how did that generation understand the relationship between the left and labor? Um, you know, there are two eras when we th talk about the, the, the uh, influence of the left in the United States. There are two kind of distinct eras that one can think about, which in which the left was able to wield influence in slightly different ways. The first one is, of course, from about the early 30s into towards the world, uh, Second World War, where you have a quite gigantic labor mobilization and labor upsurge, which transforms the Democratic Party. In this era, there isn't that much influence of labor inside the party because the party has been for decades prior a uh, organization entirely of property classes in the South, the planter class, and in the North, the uh, Eastern establishment, which is uh, bankers and manufacturers. That's what the party was. In the early 30s, you get this gigantic labor mobilization. And that labor mobilization is what puts pressure on both parties to which the Democrats are more open. It puts pressure on them to push through the New Deal. And you happen to have a president who you know, actually built and tried to take advantage of that pressure. That was FDR. So that's one era in which the left has real influence. And that's from outside the state, through massive strikes, workplace organizing, the creation of the CIO, the Communist Party, and the socialists outside the Communist Party are doing all sorts of work. Then the second era is what you brought up, Anna, which is the 60s. The 60s is a little different. You have movements, you have mobilization. There is the civil rights movement. There is also a big labor upsurge at the end of the 60s, early 70s, but it's not anything like what you had in the 1930s. And yet, you get the Great Society, you get Nixon, Richard, Richard Nixon passing 
some of the most progressive legislation we saw in the 20th century. Why does this happen? It's because labor by now is institutionalized inside the Democratic Party. And even though there isn't a lot of pressure coming from the outside, at least nothing like the 30s, there, there is pressure and real leverage inside the party from a sizable constituency that's tied to labor. Now, what both of those eras had in common is labor is able to flex its muscle in one way or the other, either outside or inside the state. Since then, what you've had is a diminution of labor's influence on both dimensions. By 1980, strikes are ancient memory, they're ancient history. Since the 1990s, they've literally flatlined until about the last two or three years. Labor's influence inside the party is a joke. There is no influence inside the party. What we are seeing now, right today, is the first glimmerings of a possible reemergence of a labor or let's say a left constituency inside the Democratic Party around Bernie Sanders and some of the people that are connected to him. That's where we are today. And just look at the difference it's made. In your broadcast, in your piece earlier, Anna, you correctly talked about how the Biden bills are being eviscerated by corporate Democrats. Still, the very fact that those issues made it on the legislative agenda at all is because of the combined effect of an electoral mobilization. It's not a labor mobilization, but at least in the elections, there's been some sign of life. And the fact that there's this tiny element within the Democrats, tiny by historical standards, but significant by American standards in recent history, that is able to hold Biden's feet to the fire. Where we are now is that we're seeing that that's just not going to be enough. For it to get further, you're going to have to have one of those two things that you had, either in the 60s, which is a decent-sized labor movement having real institutional presence inside the Democratic Party, or like the 30s, which is what we should really all strive for, a massively mobilized movement in the workplace outside the party, which is able to uh, uh, shut down operations in the same way that businesses threaten to shut them down when they don't get what they want. And what were some of the factors that led to the new left uh, separating from labor? Was it just that those long-haired kids just didn't appreciate, uh, you know, the crusty old uh, union types, or what? What, what happened there? Um, so it, there was blame on both ends. Uh, the by the 1960s, by the time SDS comes around in the 60s, labor officialdom has become pretty fat, pretty conservative. The labor upsurge in the late 60s was wildcat strikes. These weren't official strikes being led by labor officialdom. For the most part, they were rank and file workers doing job stoppages in opposition to what their own labor leaders were telling them. Now, when the students come around in the 60s, they see this and uh, they recognize it for a kind of incipient conservatism and they reject it. And they were right to do so. The difficulty was in rejecting it and mobilizing outside the labor movement meant that the, there was a strict timeline on how long these student movements could be effective. The fact of the matter is you can shut down a university, nobody really cares. Uh, it's good press, it's good publicity, it gets people riled up. But at the end of the day, universities are not what this country depends on for profits to keep going. So the students' activism was very important. It had a huge impact on stopping the Vietnam War. It had a huge impact on shifting the culture, but they weren't able to wield the kind of power that labor can. This is not all their fault. They happened to be building their politics at a time when manufacturing was going into decline and jobs were being lost. 
and workers were being thrown out. So even those that did enter the labor movement, most of them <laughs> entered it right in time to get fired. So there wasn't a whole lot they could do. Once that happened, not, and this is important, the student left at that time, a sizable chunk of it did realize the importance of labor and the labor movement, sort of what the labor, what the left today is stumblingly coming to after a long, long, long period of confusion. The student left did realize it. They tried, they failed in large part because it was just getting really hard to get jobs and maintain jobs by the early 70s. And so it would, couldn't be very successful. Once that happened, they made the fatal flaw of embracing the university. Instead of seeing the university as a place to start and then quickly get the hell out of there, they embraced it. And what you got was the gobbledygook and the, the idiotic phrase mongering and the posturing that the intellectual and the student left today is mired in. You know, what I found so important in your piece was um, where you talk about the durability of capitalism, regardless of how miserable it makes people's lives, how miserable workers are. Um, in fact, you write, this is the irony of capitalism. The very structure that forces workers into a combative stance with their bosses also inclines them to fight in a way that employers can easily manage. And I wanted you to talk about that durability and, and how um, this system allows for employers, creates a system in which employers can easily manage any type of pushback, resistance, um, you know, calls for action. Can you talk about that in, in more detail? Yeah, there are a couple of things to realize. Um, there are two traditions on the left in thinking about why workers don't just stand up and, and overthrow the system. One system, one uh, tradition, which is the more recent one, uh, which came out of the, uh, primarily for the, the intellectual, academic, and student left, uh, thinks that workers are kind of fooled into accepting their place because of ideology, because of culture. They don't really understand their interests. It's a kind of, the, the term is false consciousness. Um, and so they need to have it explained to them that they're really being screwed over. Now, in that situation, how do you explain capitalism's ability to survive? Well, it's the force of ideology. It's the force of the media, of fake news, or of employers, or of the church, basically fooling the workers into accepting their place. What's the answer then? The answer is going to be going in there and explaining to them, perhaps wagging your finger at them, uh, hmm. perhaps doing consciousness-raising seminars, explaining to them that you understand their situation better than they do. The other tradition is one that says, no, look, workers are basically rational. Most people are rational. They live their lives. They understand their constraints around them. And the reason they don't up and revolt all the time is that, well, it's really hard to do it. <laughs> it sounds blindingly simple when you say it, but that's what it really comes down to. The reason they don't revolt is because there are costs and risks associated with mass organizing, especially in the workplace, which makes workers think that prudence is the better part of valor. Well, what are this? What are these constraints? It's pretty simple. Uh, look in America, look at the uh, attempts to, uh, to organize Amazon or any of these more recent places. They have an entire industry devoted to spying on workers, to rooting out the radicals, to getting them fired, to making it impossible to actually do any organizing. Every worker knows this, and every worker knows that if he's given a choice between taking the risks of actually organizing and, on the other hand, instead, putting, keeping his head down, doing the best he can, even though it's a shitty job, even though it's a shitty wage, he'd rather have that shitty wage than having none at all. 
Now, that means that the fundamental reason that workers don't spontaneously, collectively organize, make unions, you know, fight fights for their wages or even overthrow the system is because it is materially constrained. It is really hard for them to undertake all the risks and we'll bring together all the resources it'll take to survive any kind of real battle against their employer. That means then that the answer you give, the organizing strategy is also going to be different. Whereas if you think it's fundamentally cultural, the organizing strategy is going to be finger wagging and explaining and consciousness raising and all this stuff. But if you think it's fundamentally material, it means understanding those risks that they're going to have to take bringing together the resources that will allow them to survive a job action. Like, you know, a strike fund is just that. When you put together a strike fund, it's telling workers, hey, if you go out on strike, you won't have a paycheck, but we can keep you going. The strike fund will keep you going. It's a kind of insurance policy. Bringing together a strategy that reduces the risks, that pulls together the resources, you make it rational for them to actually try to come together. Now, You're no longer saying to them, we understand your situation better than you do. What you're saying to them is, we'd like to join in the fight with you. And after we've understood all those problems and all those constraints that you face, we will together bring together a strategy that makes it a reasonable, never costless or never riskless, but a less risky option for you to do this. That's what the left always did. It created that that sense of camaraderie. It brought together resources. It forged a strategy that made it rational to undertake all those risks. But to do that, you've got to be embedded in the class. You've got to be living their lives. You've got to be in there with them. You can't come in over on weekends, lecture at them, and then go back to playing video games or whatever it is you do. I I will choose to take that not as a dig on Jacobin weekends uh, in which we go on weekends and, and and yap about all this stuff. Uh, um, But it seems like to me that the, the, what flows from that is that what's, what's necessary is, you know, old fashioned things like uh, solidarity and class consciousness. Can you, can you like talk about what class consciousness means and, and, and how it, how it is obtained? Well, I mean, there's, Class consciousness is different from just knowing that you're being screwed over. Most every worker knows they're being screwed over. And there's an incipient kind of resentment of that situation. That's the raw material on which you can build class consciousness, but it is not itself class consciousness. It becomes class consciousness when two other things happen. First of all, you realize you're not in this alone. And so there's a common element that binds you together with other people in your situation. And that element, is your objective situation. Regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, you have this in common with other people that you're all dependent on the boss, you're all vulnerable to his power, and that your fate depends on his his individual decisions. This is something you all have in common, and by sharing it, you have interests in common. So that's the first element. The second is knowing who the enemy is, and this is the harder part. In the absence of a collective identity of this kind, It's easy to take the raw material that workers have of resentment and anger and turn it against other workers, immigrants, Mm -hmm. other races. And that's especially easy because when you don't have a really good welfare state, when you don't have social democracy, et cetera, in times of dearth, in times of need, when you're in between jobs, when your wages are low, how do you survive? Historically, you survive by relying on family, friends, 
kinship networks, things like that. And those tend to be racially, ethnically homogenous. So in the absence of class consciousness, what you get is either rage, just real individualistic rage, or a kind of ethnic consciousness, racial consciousness, because those are the things that are sustaining you over time. So simply knowing that you have something in common with others won't be enough for class consciousness. You need the second element, which is identifying the enemy. That enemy, if it's not the boss, now you're going to have a problem because it's easy to steer you into all these other kinds of politics that end up hurting the poor more than it helps them. That's where we are right now in the U.S. There is not a class consciousness in the working class. There's a rage. That's a step forward because 30 years ago, there was just a sense of defeat. Even 20 years ago, there was just a sense of resignation. There's nothing we can do. Now there's an anger that something's got to be done. That anger is a positive step, but it's still being directed against other elements of the poor, other vulnerable sections. And until we get beyond that, this not just the ethnocentrism, but this crazy racial tribalism in this country that even sections of the left promote, until you get beyond that and you target the bosses, you target the elites, you're not going to get very far. That's when you'll have class consciousness. So, you know, I'd like you to expand on that point further because uh, there is wall-to-wall coverage of things like critical race theory, for instance. I mean, most of the attention in the corporate media is paid to the cultural and racial differences that people have. Uh, and that's uh, further buttressed by the debates and discussions that take place among our politicians, where uh, they, I mean, they have an actual interest in avoiding any type of debate or conversation about how to materially improve people's lives. And instead they focus or, or deflect by focusing on some of these culture war issues, which tend to rile people up um, and kind of help workers or not help them, but it, it leads to them losing focus um, on who the real enemies are, right? Yeah. How do we fight back against that? Well, what do you think the role of the corporate media is? Do you think that they're in cahoots with all of this? And is there a way to fight back against it? The way the corporate media works, except in certain times in Fox Network, Fox News especially, the corporate, the bosses in corporate media don't make phone calls to journalists, to their talking heads, telling them what to say. That decision really is made when they hire them. And you hire people whose viewpoints you trust, who you know you're not going to have to micromanage. They're going to basically take the line you want them to take. So in the corporate media, the reason uh, they're not trusted and the reason they stoke these culture wars is because they actually believe. People on MSNBC, I mean, you don't have to tell them that the poor are stupid, that white people are all racist, that (laughs) these anti-vaxxers are all just in the thrall of some uh, church. They really believe it. That basket of deplorable stuff, that's what they talk about when they have their brunches and their white wine spritzers. So the yes, the corporate media is stoking it, but it's stoking it because it believes it. It believes it because the class that it belongs to, the stratum of the middle class, which is the intelligentsia, which is journalists, professors, media hacks, they basically all share the same view, which is, the poor are poor because they're stupid or the poor are poor because they don't understand their situation. Part of that is believing all this stuff that the culture wars stoke. So one of the reasons the culture wars are so effective 
is that when the Republicans point to the media or point to intellectuals or point to artists and, and they say, these are elitists, they hate you, they're gonna, they want to take away your community, your history, it's not entirely false. They, I've, I've been living with academics now for 30 odd years. Most of them have a pretty dim view of the poor. Not that different from what you hear on the media. Most of them, in fact, have disdain. So the culture wars are effective. When you say, Anna, what should we do? The first thing you've got to do is you've got to realize that they're effective in part because the poor actually feel that liberals piss on them day and night. And they feel that because it's not entirely false. <laughs> so I think for the left, yeah. the first task is to understand, appreciate the dignity, the self-respect, the cognitive abilities and the intelligence of working people, ordinary people, and understand that you don't blame them if Trump gets elected. You don't blame them if there's white supremacy on the rise. You try to understand what the material basis for all this stuff is. And that's a fancy way of saying why are everyday people who are struggling with their lives being drawn to this stuff? Why do they think it's reasonable? Why do they think it's attractive? And you can't say the answer is, well, because they're stupid or because white privilege or their whiteness. This kind of stuff, you say this to them and they, they tune you out. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the um, the effort to unionize Amazon uh, in Bessemer, Alabama. It was a, uh, I thought, unusually high profile uh, union drive. You know, you don't it's, you don't see the media covering uh, most union drives that often. I mean, obviously, there was a, it was covered extensively on left media. And then it was a, you know, sort of crushing defeat. Now that now it looks like they might have another vote, um, and there was a lot of kind of postmortems uh, afterwards that sort of discussed why 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 that effort um, failed. Um, can you can you discuss why it's so difficult to to do that, even when it seemed like you know in this case they you know there was they got national attention, you know people were excited about it on board. There seemed to be the the sort of seeds of solidarity um, for for that for that race. Um, but what, what is your what is your take on that, and, and what does it mean for the kind of near future? I, I think the left needs to be very sober about uh, drives, initiatives like organizing in Bessemer, the the Amazon drive. There are going to be right now more failures than successes because, look, it's been more than two generations now since uh, unions actually actively tried to organize in hostile settings. Unions since the 80s have been in decline, and to the extent that they've br brought in new workers at all, it's been through their own kind of mergers and acquisitions, raiding other unions or going <laughs> to places where they're already organized. You know, one big thing that why is the UAW organizing graduate students? I mean, what is that? What? Well, because they're already organized, <laughs> they're already in the university. You know, a lot of them like to, um, they, had, they like the idea of being in a union, partly because it'll help them, but for others, it's virtue signaling and it's their chance to say, I was a union militant. But the fact is, you don't have to do a lot of work. There's been two generations since unions actually actively organized in hostile settings, which means the skills have atrophied. What it takes to actually win, that knowledge has not been passed down from one generation of unionists to another. And they're having to rediscover how this is done. That's going to take some time. It just so happens that in this case, they're going up against a company 
That's like the Death Star, you know, in, in, uh, in Star Trek. <laughs> You're going up against a company that is the size, has the resources of entire nation states. It's not going to go down easy. On top of that, you've got U.S. labor law, which is written for corporations. It shouldn't be called labor law. It should be called anti-labor law. So that makes it so difficult to organize that there's going to be a lot of failure. You know, I saw the, the postmortems too, and there was a lot of truth to them. And I think a lot on the left said, you know, when Jane McAlevey wrote her criticisms, people on the left were saying, well, look, this is going to discourage people. My reaction was, if it's true, it's true. And this isn't a game for children. If being discouraged is going to dissuade you, you're in the wrong game because labor organizing is 90% defeat, 10% victories in a time like this. So in my view, good. I'm glad that Amazon uh, is, it took it on the chin with this NLRB ruling, and perhaps the union will get a second chance, and hopefully they'll learn from it. But understand, this isn't a movie. It's not the third act where the hero comes in, and now that everyone mm. realizes we have to organize, you're going to win. As I said earlier, a lot of these workers know they want to be, they need to be organized. They might still vote against the union because Amazon comes and says to them, fine, maybe you'll organize. Guess what? If you do, we've got 49 other states we can go to. Yeah. That's a real threat. And it's better for many workers to have that shitty job than to have none at all. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard. There's going to be a lot of defeats. The great thing is we're actually talking uh, 20 years ago on the left. You wouldn't talk about this. Yeah. You would talk about intersectionality or something like that. You wouldn't have discussions <laughs> about uh, labor organizing. The, the left is coming to its senses, finally. And the fact that we're having debates, discussions around how to win rather than how to feel better about ourselves or what clothes to wear, these are positive movements. What do we do um, in terms of those who feel turned off by the laser focus on economic inequality um, that doesn't, in their opinion, adequately address their concerns regarding racial tensions in the country or, you know, identity related issues, which are real. And I think yeah. that, you know, you do a good job in explaining why those racial tensions exist in the first place. Right. But there is still this divide. There is this um, disagreement among the left regarding, um, you know, what the focus should be. Right. So. Right. Because I think um, some, and I know you've talked about this many times, but I wanted to give you another opportunity to discuss it because I think it's an important issue right. and we keep running into this obstacle over and over again. So I'll tell you, look, I, I came to this country and I was 15 and I've been in or around the left now for 30 years. And, I, and I, here's what I've seen. It's almost impossible to get anyone to focus on economic issues on the <laughs> left. There's this it's a, it's this kind of trope that people trot out that the left doesn't take non-economic issues seriously when in fact it's all the left wants to talk about. For 30 years all I've seen is an obsessive focus on race and gender and sexuality. So here's my response to what you're asking. First of all, I deny the premise. It's not the case that the left has a laser-like focus on economic issues. It's a huge struggle to bring economic issues into the left. Second, if that happens, it's a wonderful achievement. It'll be a fantastic achievement if the left always starts every discussion with economic issues. You know why? Because economic issues are always at the forefront of the poor, whether they're women or whether they're blacks. Funny, maybe not funny, tragic anecdote. 
the great Alicia Garza, the founding member of Black Lives Matter, uh, created this uh, nonprofit. Not surprising, BLM was in large measure an attempt to start more nonprofits or at least get into them. And they did the largest survey ever of African-Americans and their attitudes to social and economic issues. This wasn't um, target, targeted at working class African-Americans. It was just basically blacks in general, um, in which they oversampled um, LGBTQ and women, not workers. Still, what did she find? The top four concerns, you can go to the, the website and look at this. The top four issues that African-Americans said were on their agenda, regardless of class, were jobs, healthcare, uh, student debt, and um, just one other economic issue. I forget what it was. So now, so who is it that's worried that we're talking too much about economic issues? Well, it's, it's the young professionals. It's the professional managerial class that today inhabits the left. If you continue to focus on economic issues and some of them decide to quit, well, they should never have been in the left in the first place. You cannot have a left that's apologetic about prioritizing economic issues because to prioritize economic issues is to prioritize the concerns of working people, of the poor. And I will guarantee you, if you in fact embed yourselves within the working class, which is majority non-white, majority women, you will never be allowed to get away with being economic reductionists or being class or whatever little your favorite term of opprobrium happens to be if you're on the student left. You will always have to focus or bring in gender, race, sexuality issues. The difference will be you won't be allowed to ignore the economic issues, which is the calling card of an American leftist today. Vic, I, I, you've been so generous with your time. Um, uh, I, I, w- I want to let you go soon. Uh, I just want to say I, I, you know, I always, I always love hearing you talk because I, I tried in my life and in, in the work I do to try to keep things as simple and straightforward as possible. And I always admire hearing you talk about these these very complicated issues in such a simple, straightforward way with such confidence. Um, and I, I, I wanted to just a final question ask. You know, because you, you mentioned that you're a veteran of 30 years on the left. I think most people watching this show, you know, you said that there's like there are younger people who don't have as much experience. Um, I want to I wanted to just ask you as someone who was around the left uh, in the 1990s. Um, how different is it today from back then? Because I think often, you know, the young people who are new to the left, like they, they just see they're like they're excited because becoming part of a political movement is exciting. Um, but then all of a sudden you start running into just constant defeat (laughs) and there's like a, uh, so is there, but is there a silver lining? Is there some sort of glimmer of hope? Like have things changed in, in some way, uh, from the dark days of the nineties or, 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 or not? It's night and day. There's no comparison. The nineties were the darkest of periods. And by nineties, what do we really mean is about 92, 93 to about 2002, 2003, that era. It was in the early 2000s you saw some glimmer when the anti-globalization movement took off, but then 9-11 threw everything underground for about five years. Then it started to come up again in, say, 2008, 2009. The real dark ages were 92, 93 to 2003, 2005. It was, uh, it's night and day. I'll, here are the couple of the ways in which it's different. That was the decade in which the retreat from real organizing and real activism was so total that it never even came up in left 
groupings in left discussions. The, the discussions were overwhelmingly around just how to survive, how do we get through this and what to do. And one saw at that time, because it had been retreating into middle-class circles, economic and class issues becoming a non-factor. And every discussion was about how the left is insensitive to race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, and how that's where the real battle was. And it took me a while to understand the reason that was coming up was not because it was true. It was never true. It was never true in the 20th century that the left was insensitive to race, gender, sexuality issues. It wasn't as good as it should have been, but in its time, it was always at the forefront of wherever its society happened to be. The left was always the leading edge on what we today call identity issues. This is true in the US on race issues as well. It took me a while to realize the reason people were saying this wasn't because they were trying to enrich class politics with these other things, but it was because they were trying to excise class from the left. Mm. It took a long time to see that. And one saw it happening in slow motion and it was incredibly depressing. The second thing that was happening was the left was mostly attracting weirdos. <laughs> people who just didn't fit in. People who, when normal... Is that, is that an to, academic term? Yeah, it's technically... Weirdos? Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I had to, I, 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 there, I'll, I'll send yeah. a, a glossary later for people who need to, to figure yeah. it out. You basically got people who were just were social rejects and needed to go find a place where they would come across other social rejects and feel better about themselves. And that's why this obsessive focus on subjectivity, do I feel good, am I affirmed? You know, this left became affirmation groups, right? Empathy groups, sympathy groups. And so um, what you're getting now for the first time, along with an actual concern with real politics and actually making a difference in the world, is people coming to the left who aren't just a subculture or, you know, people trying to feel better about themselves and their emotional, their neuroses, you're getting people who have other options in life, but they actually want to see something happen. This is all post-Bernie Sanders. What Sanders did was he made people realize that they are not alone in their anger or in their sense of defeat, in their desire to see something happen. And once people saw that other people feel the same way, it wasn't just the outcasts and weirdos and rejects who were, <laughs> I know I'm going to get a lot of shit for saying this, but it's time he just said it. <laughs> <laughs> Until the left becomes the part of the mainstream culture, the mainstream will continue to reject it. And as long as the mainstream rejects the left, the left is just a is just a social club. It's nothing more. Yeah. We're now to the point where, I mean, look at you guys. You, you seem to be, you know, normal people. Yeah. So <laughs> we're, we're to the point where um, you're not just a weird little subculture. And that means you're learning to talk to real people. You're learning to communicate. And the next step will be actually getting working people to listen to you. That's the next step. If that happens, yeah. now we're, we're actually entering the domain of politics and not theater, which is where the left was for 25 years. Well, I, I promise you, you won't get as much hate for saying weirdos than uh, when you confuse the Death Star uh, is in Star Wars, not Star Trek. Uh, that's when you can really get a lot oh of hate. Oh, my God. I was thinking uh, of the board. That's the nerds so are vicious. Well, so, you know, I, just, I want to issue a correction on the show uh, just to just to protect you uh, from the vicious uh, All that from hate the vicious send nerds. it to Mando, please. Uh, yes, I'm I'll, I'll take, to, it. To take it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God.
my gosh. All right. Well, Vivek Chibber, thank you so much for being generous with your time. This was a wonderful conversation. Everyone go check out his latest piece in the print version of Jacobin. Um, also, uh, depending on your subscription, you could also check it out digitally. And um, please check out his books, um, his past book, Post-Colonial Theory um, and the Specter of Capital, and his forthcoming book, The Class Matrix Social Theory After the Cultural Turn. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, we have a special um, segment coming up. Uh, Special report. We have really upped the ante regarding our production, and we've even hired an on-the-ground reporter who is reporting live from the National DSA Convention. Who is that reporter, Nando? It's one Kale Brooks. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Why don't we watch? Yeah, thanks. So we're here uh, at the Javits Center, actually, to cover the DSA National Convention. Uh, I'm going to be speaking with our uh, DSA correspondent, Michael. All right, so Michael, so uh, I'm meeting you here at the Javits Center, but I'm not seeing any delegates here. Are you, are you sure that the... Are, are you sure that the, the... Did you hear that? That's them. They're, rock, they're coming up right now, a lot of them, delegates. And, um, you know... That's the, the world's best ferry. That's delegate transportation. It's been, like, intense. Like, the feeling on the street when you just are walking around is just, like, pretty tense because people know a lot of major decisions are being made about the future of, well, the Javits Center because they gave them full control over the whole, like, program for the Javits Center for the next year. So that's pretty cool. What's like the big hot button issue of the day at the convention? What's controversial? What are people talking about? I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of controversy here since I've been getting, since I've been standing alongside the DSA convention. In years past, there's been some internal caucuses within DSA, such as uh, Momentum, uh, the Communist Caucus, Build, Bread and Roses. Who are the major players this year that we should keep our eyes out on? Well, there was a caucus called... Um, Saturday caucus and they were great but they um, had a big discussion and they broke up so now they split into four different caucuses there's another one called um, maybe maybe it's a good idea caucus and they didn't like they nobody really trusts them so they had a bad um, showing one of them is called um, hey it's time, and let's get out of this little room now, caucus. And they have been so sweet. Typically, the, the National Convention ends up inviting important people on the left or, or big socialists in the country, politicians, thinkers, uh, to come give speeches. Uh, are there any big names that we should expect to see this year? I mean, look, you know, I feel like since it's at the Javits Center, the Jacob Javits Center, you're probably going to be seeing Jacob Javits, you know, doing a lot of talking at this convention. The Javits Center is probably most well-known for most people as where Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election. Right, right, right. It was supposed to be where her her final, um, her campaign rally uh, on the night of the election was going to be held. Well, why do you think they're having it here? Well, is is the DSA here in order to break glass ceilings? Well, it's here to commemorate that night. Oh, really? Um, my, my sense... Wait, there she is. Is that Hillary Clinton? Yeah, she just came by. 
So at the 2019 National Convention, uh, the members ended up voting for Medicare for All, labor organizing, the Green New Deal, and class struggle elections as the national priorities. Are there any other priorities that we might expect to see this year emerge from the convention? You know, you got me on that one because I've been trying to find out all day what's going on in there. And, like, every time I go to the door, I say hi to the guy that's standing there. And I like, said, well, you know, it's the Democratic Socialist Convention. And then he says, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. And he won't let me in. And then we get into a long thing. And... It, you know, go back and forth. And so the, I haven't been able to get inside. You haven't gotten inside at all? No. From what I can tell online, it seems like people are on Zoom calls for this convention. Are they on the Zoom calls inside the Javits Center? You know, Carl, like the thing about the convention happening at the Javits <laughs> Center is that I'm so sure about it because I got, a, um, I was on the Slack and they, 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 they put me in the channel and it was like, when I got in there... I just started to, like, smile. And then I was like, you know what we should do, all of us together here right now, is just pretend that we're really tiny, and then we'll be able to go inside. And that's how we did it. You know, like, hats off. Thank you, Michael, for answering. I think what we could say is all of our questions regarding the national convention this year Anything that you want to impart to our viewers about how they can maybe get involved with DSA? I mean, honestly, first, I just want to say thank you for letting me stand here and um, sending me over to the convention center. And if you want to get involved, the website is um, dsausa.org. Yeah. Yeah, that's the actual website. Go there and... Great. Well, thank thank you, Michael. Thank you for... uh, your coverage today. Thank you for your coverage today. Wow. Intrepid wow. shoe leather a- reporting. Kale, Dan, you're looking big. Have you been working out, dude? No, it's just a, it's a lens perspective. Lens. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, that's a DSA correspondent, Michael. Uh, I hope people appreciate his coverage. Um, it was a, I think we realized a little too late that the national convention is not at the Javits Center, but uh, I think yeah. we got to the to the heart of of the the national convention's politics. Nevertheless, yeah. So. Jacob Javits spoke. He rose from the dead and spoke. <laughs> it was pretty rousing. No, but yeah. Oh, well, tell us more about that, Kale. I'm curious about it. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't believe it, but I mean, he sounds like Debs. Like when <laughs> Jacob Javits, uh, you know, you know, he has somewhat of like a, um, you know, now a, a strange legacy that the fact that his name is is all over uh, big corporate buildings. But um, he actually uh, he was a uh, a Debsian of his day, uh, and uh, and so I think it was fitting that the DSA brought him in. Um, he, he agreed, he probably would have agreed with a lot of what Vivek actually said. So, um, you know, he, he talked about the, the challenges of organizing Amazon. Uh, so nice. Uh, yeah. So the weekend caucus, is that the caucus we should be joining as host okay. of weekends <laughs> or the, the Saturday maybe week. it's a good idea caucus. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Sounds pretty damn good. 
I'm going to be on. I was among those that splintered within the Saturday caucus. And so um, yeah, there's still some bad blood, to be honest. But uh, yeah. mm. I, I wish trots in the weekend caucus. Yeah, the the trots and the Maoists are on one side, the, you know, the, the class reductionists are on the other. It's um, it's right. It's, it's, it's ugly. <laughs> it's ugly. Um. Anyways, the national right. convention is happening right now. It's on Zoom calls. Um, it obviously does matter, and hopefully, uh, there are good results from it. I'm actually, I don't know if, I don't know if this, like, I'm a delegate technically, which, like, thankfully, I don't have to vote at this time. It's later, um, and I probably should pay more attention. But, um, <laughs> like, it does. It the thing is, like, it does matter even at times when DSA feels kind of like whether it's like Comic-Con or like cosplaying or like, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're part of this big project and yet we don't have our hands on any levers of power, but it does matter to like to try to get these things right, whether it's within the internal organization or building out major campaigns, because um, I mean, the DSA is the most significant left formation in this country. And like, certainly since the sixties, um and and maybe even earlier uh and and like Vivek was saying i think there's although there certainly is a consensus there's there's a far greater emphasis on the importance of embedding the left within the working class and on labor organizing than there's been um i mean probably at least since like you know aspects of the 60s and, and sds but um you know uh again i think the we we look back to probably to gain greater lessons um to the to the left of the 30s uh than than the 60s and and kind of realizing you know where mistakes were made but also just like kind of what are the big structural factors that like our organizing sits on top of um and and understanding like Vivek was saying like both you know the fact like who we're organizing with who working class people are and what their interests are um, and then like what the power of capital really is and, and being, you know, sober about that. So, um, the DSI plays a very important role in that, uh, as frustrating as it can be at times for those who are part of it. Um, and, uh, and so it, it, I'm being as optimistic as possible that like, it really, like we want the DSI to come out better and stronger, you know, after the convention and to keep moving in a, in a good direction. So, Jokes aside, yeah, figured we should yeah. we should we should shout out the the Democratic Socialists. So cool. Do we have um, any super chats to get to? Well, today, so no? normally we would. I would be on because mm-hmm. we'd be doing super chats, but we're doing a slightly different format now. So there really aren't super chats, but um, we could. There there are a couple of questions from the chat that we could address, such as. Uh, now that you aren't doing weekends on Saturdays live, what are you going to do on Saturday mornings? Oh, I'm so sleep excited. Sleep in. I'm an early bird, so I'm not going to sleep in. I wish I could. My body just doesn't let me sleep in. Um, but like, I don't know. The world is my oyster. There's like, I could do yeah. anything. I can like go out of town. I can go for a nice long run instead of doing a super rushed, like 20 minute run because Kale's sending me text messages about the show and making me panic. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, taking my weekends back. 
Yeah, it's like, wait, Anna, you haven't read all of the collective works of Marx and Engels uh, in preparation for your segment this morning? What is wrong with you? I, I know. Yeah. Kale, you're amazing. You really are amazing. Yeah. Like pr- probably the most well-read 24-year-old in the country. In the universe. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will um, – so spoiler alert, uh, I prepare the show the morning of. You know, Anna is very good about – she does her whole segment like – during the week, which is the right thing to do. I don't. Um, I've always been this way. It, in school, I was the same way. Just, you know, I couldn't, like, if the essay was due three weeks from now, even if I had, like, all the tools to do it, I couldn't do it until the night before uh, or sometimes the day of. So I do the, the show the day of, which means I wake up at 6 in the morning and then prepare the segment for the four hours before uh, the show airs. So now that I don't have to do that, I'll sleep in by sleeping till like 8 a.m., you know, Uh, and more importantly, I'll be able to do more stuff on Friday nights uh, because I did try to like, you know, not get too drunk or stay up late or whatever on Friday nights um, so that I was fresh and beautiful for you people on the show. So how many times have you done weekends while hungover? Couple. I mean, there was that one time that you and I hung out and we got really oh drunk, <laughs> and we were both that like was the in a bad episode. shape. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, were both. We were. That it was, was in it was a, painful. Yeah, yeah. We just got together. <laughs> we just like started drinking the wine and talking about the politics, and you know, like, and then the wine kept on flowing, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, holy shit, uh, we're hammered. <laughs> <laughs> so hammered. Yes. But it was worth it. It was fun. Um, so now we don't have to worry about that. Now we can get hammered and not worry about doing a show early morning on Saturday. Um, yeah. Which, by the way, you know, Kale is on the East Coast, so um, he doesn't have to wake up as early. But Kale's a youngin, man. You deserve your yeah. Fridays. Yeah. You deserve yeah. your Friday nights. Yeah. You need to go out about town. You need to, like, you know, paint the town red, baby. When I was 24 years old, I was going out, like, fucking crazy, you know? Now that I'm 35, almost 36... Um, I can't do that no more. I just can't do that no more. I mean, I used to go out like till late as hell, like five, six in the morning sometimes, and then go to work the next day and be like totally fine when I was 24. Uh, that now seems incon- inconceivable. So, uh, Kale, go out. You know, the women of New York are, you know, terrified now that Kale is unleashed on Friday <laughs> nights. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell him Nando sent me. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's a oh wait, wrong one. This this one um, challenge for Jack and the fans. Figure out which shows they were hungover for. Um, yeah, go back through the archives. Yeah. The real heads know. Yeah. Um, this is one more question we'll do, and then I think we'll wrap. Um, uh, I don't. It feels like this is a question referring to um, a different statement, which I don't know if we made a statement. But the question is, how is housing at the moment not the top priority for organizing? Um, so maybe maybe. The question is specific to housing, but then also like, what is the priority for organizing? Well, certainly here in LA, it probably is the top priority, um, uh, at least in, yeah. in local LA politics, both from the reactionaries to the libs to the left. Uh, it is the it is the most uh, it is the top priority. I mean, I I've I've frequently mentioned in in shows in the past um, how I'm surprised that housing is not a bigger issue nationally like just politicians literally right. never talk about it national politicians like literally never talk about it it's just in any presidential debates vice presidential debates like it's just it housing is not seen as an as a 
as an issue where politics can intervene. And I remember like when everyone laughed at that rent is too damn high guy, you know, it's like, look at this ridiculous guy. And it's like, wait, you know, the rent is too damn high. No, not you ridiculous. Know? Yeah. Not, not ridiculous at all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I frequently just I'm shocked by that because housing is the thing. I mean, it's you, people need a, the roof over their heads. Um, but in certainly in, in L.A., it is probably the top political issue. Well, but I think short of like left universal programs when it comes to housing, I don't really know if like like neoliberal politicians can actually offer a national platform for housing because it is so varied from state to state and city to city. Like mm -hmm. the left, the, the left can like, as we can say like, yeah, we do want um, uh, rent control. We want uh, greater rent stabilization. We want far greater public housing and like real good actual public housing uh, that you don't see in this country. Like our example of public housing in the U S are, are basically like slums. Like it's yep. like, horrible it's like, punishing people for yeah. being poor right i mean it's yeah. it's the complete opposite of what you see in austria where you know they don't even call it public housing they call it social housing and it's really a mix of high income earners low income earners people who are struggling and the facilities the housing itself is beautiful it's beautiful people want to live there um and the rent or the how much you pay for housing um you know has a lot to do with your pay, right? So how much you can pay for your rent. And I think that's just a, a far better model. Um, certainly better than what we have now. I would like it to go further. I think part of the problem is seeing housing as um, a financial investment, as a way of building wealth. And for the long, longest time, you know, I think people didn't have a problem with that because it was seen as one of the only ways that um, working people could build wealth in this country. But um, it's becoming abundantly clear that it's more and more difficult for that to happen. And um, I think that, you know, we got to take the like the profit motive out of it. We have to stop seeing it as um, a financial investment or a commodity and see it as something that people literally need for survival. Yeah, I, I was at a dinner in L.A. this week with a bunch of like well-meaning liberals and like any dinner in L.A., these days, the issue of homelessness uh, comes up and I was like, you know, and they're all they're all looking and they're all like looking at each other like, you know, it's just a just a very complicated, it's just a very complicated issue. It's very complex. You know, it's very, it's extremely complex. And I'm like, I was just like, it's really not. I mean, it's politically very difficult, but it's not that complicated. You know, we know what the solutions are. There's other cities and other countries that have, you know, that functionally kind of eliminated homelessness it's mm -hmm. you know it's not like you know some mystical thing that you can't uh solve it's just the way the way the u.s political system is set up makes it very difficult politically to implement implement these kind of incredibly simple solutions mostly because of what you were talking about like that that housing is seen as the as the way to to build wealth you know if anyone no one wants public housing in their neighborhood. No one wants homelessness shelters in their neighborhood because they think it just devalues the, their their property values, and they're probably right about it. Um, so that's that's the rational uh, material thing undergirding all of this. But like, you know, it, since it's never it's never discussed in those terms, it's always discussed as this like mystifying thing. This kind of like very complex, very complex issue. It's a, it's very complicated. Yeah, and it's like well, it's just not. I will add, though, I will add that, like, it's in some ways, well, we know what the solutions are. I don't think the solutions are complicated at all. But I do think that there is a problem of um, 
I think everyone all around, like treating it as if uh, the homeless population is a monolith and all you need to do is provide housing and everything will be solved. It's not that easy. Um, I think that, I mean, you want to talk about intersectionality. I think this is an example of intersectionality. You have um, the intersection of all these failed policies that have led to the homeless uh, crisis in, in not just in California, it's the worst in California, but you're seeing it across the country. And it's the um, defunding of mental health care uh, facilities. It's the, you know, obviously the profit motive behind um, real estate and owning a home. It's just uh, stagnant wages. You have people who are in fact addicted to in- incredibly like dangerous and hard drugs, not because they're bad people. These are these are people who are looking to escape, um, people who are addicted to drugs because of the despair that they've been experiencing in their lives or because they got hooked on um, painkillers that were prescribed to them when they got hurt. I mean, there are so... It is... The, the population is not a monolith. So I think that we yeah. need to start looking at the complexity of that. But in regard to the solutions, I agree with you. Like, I don't think that the solutions are that complicated. It's just that um, in the political class, uh, and certainly among the corporate class, they don't want those solutions because those yeah. solutions would require redistribution of wealth. No, yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the, all, all that's true. Like the, But I mean, the, what I was talking about is like, you know, and I was, and I, I mentioned in, in this in this dinner as well. I was like, I mean, the two things that that we don't have in the United States that other countries have, other countries that have more or less, you know, there's there's there there are some people in the streets, and but there, but more or less kind of eliminated um, homelessness. Certainly more than you know, than, than certainly not having the crisis that we have in the United States is is public medicine, you know, public health care, Medicare for all, or some version of it, um, and. Uh, the government intervening in the housing market in some meaningful way, the, the federal government intervening in the housing market in some meaningful way, whether it's rent control or, you know, public housing, both. Uh, but that's, that's really what it is. It's, it's simple in that sense. Like if we had public health, mm-hmm. a public health care system, a lot of that stuff that you're talking about, like the, you know, the, the, the addiction problems, diseases, of, you know, what we call like diseases of despair, things like that, um, would be significantly reduced. Um, and to the extent that there still would be people with with addiction, all that stuff, they would be cared for. They'd be housed. They'd be they'd be they'd have access to uh, services and things like that. That would that would help them protect themselves and protect others. I mean, that's just that's that's really what it is. I mean, but in L.A., um, you know, we're seeing obviously just, the the solutions are nothing. We're, we'll do nothing for right. them, um, and then we'll just stick the cops on them. I mean, <laughs> because we don't want them in our neighborhood. You know, I, I live in Venice and. I mean, this is like the the political issue in Venice. And, you know, there was Sheriff Villanueva, uh, this like fascist <laughs> sheriff from L.A., just like going to the boardwalk with AR-15s and, and, and just like clearing out these these encampments. And, you know, it's just like a game of whack-a-mole because they're they're not offering literally anything uh, other than just kind of moving them from one neighborhood to another. Yeah, um, yeah they offer so. they offer temporary housing. And that's a problem. That's not a sustainable um, no. way of handling this, right? Mm-hmm. Because people need permanent housing um, and they need services in addition to that to get their feet back on the ground. But, yeah, you know. Well, and then also, I mean, the other part of this is so not just the homeless population, but people who are in apartments, uh, in homes that are dealing with crazy out of control rent uh, mortgages. 
Um, I think for, I've been surprised really like throughout COVID to see uh, how many people throughout uh, Brooklyn, for instance, uh, ended up organizing their, their units and their buildings um, and uh, were withholding rent uh, for, some people are still going till today, like over a year after uh, the pandemic started because um, people, you know, in the early months ended up losing their jobs and they're like, we don't have the income to provide you rent. So why are you putting a global pandemic on my shoulders instead of like joining me and demanding that the state do something about this? Um, which mm-hmm. is the more morally, you know, it's the more morally justified thing to say. Of course, it's politically extremely hard because you're going up against massive corporate uh, uh, real estate companies and and, and holders. Um I still think so just to to get to the the question um uh one last time uh question of if not housing I mean I still think that the probably the most important political issue to be organizing around in the US still remains healthcare um and I think everything that we've said so far about housing is like means for why uh people need this organizing and why they need uh, left and progressive uh, political outcomes when it comes to housing. Um, and I think you can make the, we could have done the exact same thing with healthcare. I think the difference between healthcare and all these other things is that um, fundamentally, if, if it, it comes down to your conception of how do you end up um, transforming the country further? Like, how do you actually get a win and then get a subsequent win? And um, and the left has traditionally said, and I, I think it's it's still true that it's through the labor movement, through the uh, you know through unions, and the number one issue that unions have to deal with at the bargaining table with their bosses, with their employers, is healthcare contracts. And so you know, um, union members might say, we should fight for a wage increase, we should fight for better conditions, um, and the boss might say okay, you know, maybe we can renegotiate, but that it's going to come at the expense of your healthcare plan. Um, and that there's always this, like, healthcare ends up becoming a stumbling block, both in the in the immediate sense, like in trying to fight for more, um, and also becomes difficult, uh, you know, when we're trying to build coalitions and, and push for progressive outcomes that, um, you know, when it comes to, to this issue, um, like we've talked about before, when we talked about the New York Health Act, for instance, and why some of the unions in, in New York State were opposed to a single payer system at the state level. Uh, part of it just comes down to the fact that these unions um, had, in fact, gotten their members good health care plans. And what we're saying is we want to fight for an even better plan that's universal for everyone in the country. Um, and again, people are rational and realize like what the stakes are in that fight. And they say, yeah, well, that's not going to happen. So I'm just going to hold on to what I have and and deal with it. But we, we are in a massive, massive crisis when it comes to healthcare and medicine and to, you know, private health insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. And, um, and so I think we need to, to advance this issue because then what ends up happening is we can then free up the unions so that they're no longer stuck, you know, debating, fighting over, you know, uh, their healthcare plans, trying to get a slightly better situation or trying to defend it against an onslaught in other ways. Um, it ends up opening up greater possibilities for working class solidarity and then union organizing and mobilization towards these other greater ends. Um, like, you know, again, like Vivek was saying about how unions have rarely been kind of offensively organizing in the last few decades. This could be a turning point where like 
greater healthcare coverage for more people might end up meaning uh, greater, more ambitious labor organizing um, because your healthcare isn't tied to your, your job because uh, it's now no longer one of the main things that you're debating at the your bargaining table. Um, so yeah. it, it, it just, it keeps paying dividends. So it's, it's like something that I think strategically healthcare remains the focal point for the left. Just, and like, that doesn't discount at all that there are these other massive crises. There's the environment, like there's all these other things that are going on um, that have to be addressed. And we can, of course, address these as, you know, where we can, we should, you know, make progress as long as we see this kind of culminating in like a collective movement and a working class political effort in the same direction that tenant organizing um, that, uh, you know, whether it's kind of uh, dealing with uh, fossil fuel companies um, fighting for expanded healthcare. Um, I just think that healthcare remains kind of like the, the spearhead uh, to steal an analogy from our, our late friend, Michael Brooks, so not our, not a reporter friend, hmm. uh, different Michael. Um, hmm. But anyways, that's, that's what I would say. That's my argument. And if someone has a better argument, I'm definitely down to, to change my mind on that. But that's still seen. Yeah. Even, you're even... going to sit at that table. You're going to sit at that table and be like, uh, you know, sitting with your arms folded, look, saying, change my mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have one of those All tables. Right. I just carry it around with me. The True. Change my mind table. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Kale, right, stay. Um, I, I hate when you say bye and then we say bye again. It's too yeah. repetitive. So yeah. why don't we all say bye together? Um, so thank you to everyone who's watching. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Um, any final words from uh, either of you, Kale or Nando? It's Friday night, baby. Let's get drunk. Hell yeah. Almost Love time it. to log into the DSA National Convention Airtable. <laughs> happy hour. What, uh, do they have a happy hour venue? Um, we'll make one. Some friends are going to come over. We're, we're going to get through this together. So Nice. Nice. All right. Well, we love you guys. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I can't Go think ahead. of anything more nerdy than Kale and his friends getting together to watch the DSA convention over a few beers. Like, oh, my God. You believe what you guys have. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're going to have like a drinking game. Like every time someone mentions like, you know, you're being ableist shot, you know, or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Well, all right. Leave it to your imagination what we're doing. (laughs) All right. Either way, again, thank you guys for watching. Thanks for supporting the show. We love you and we'll see you next week. Bye. Later. 